Real World Ember, where we talk with devs, Ember devs, who are awesome, but not necessarily super famous yet. Today we have Joseph, Daniel. Which one do you like to go by again? I go by Daniel. All right, cool. So, Daniel, go ahead and tell us a little about yourself. Like, uh, where do you live and uh, how long have you been programming? I live in Austin, Texas, and I have been programming in general for a little over two and a half years. Uh huh. So, not too long. And before that, I was uh, working in a completely unrelated industry. Uh, what industry is that? Uh, I was a photographer. Really? Do you feel like your design skills carry over any? I feel like I have no design skills. <laughs> that would make photography a difficult profession. Yes, it <laughs> did. Actually, that's probably not true. I was just overly critical, I feel, of my photography. Mostly, I do think that there a preference for layout and uh, just I have opinions based on that, but... Working in the design um, visual space in the programming industry is not really my favorite part or something that I spend a lot of time in, even though I am an Ember JavaScript developer. Right, right. I know we've talked some about how you really love doing the more functional side of programming, getting into some of the academic side. Did that start off your interest in programming or how'd you get started with that? My interest in programming initially was more out of necessity of wanting to explore a different type of industry and not be a photographer. Um, (laughs) Not anything too interesting. However, I certainly became obsessed pretty quickly. And I have talked with you before about uh, functional programming and that isn't directly tied to my sort of disdain for like styling and and doing the more visual aspects of being a front-end developer. Um, but I do have, and I realize a lot of people talk about this, so it's sort of a hot topic now, but a belief that a functional style of coding um, makes your code base inherently safer for like refactoring and change and easier for multiple people to work on and, and consume, especially larger teams. Saw so with React, hate to, it can be faster or with HTML bars as well. And just, you know, collectively, a lot of projects are moving into this functional like way of working sort of together. Yeah. So uh, how have you seen that happen with Ember? Because Ember, it does have some functional components, but at the beginning, it was very object-oriented. So, well, it's still object-oriented, I would say. But And obviously, this is just sort of my interpretation or, or my opinion. Um, I'm not – I don't represent uh, the collective view on these things. But I think that Ember has, since Sprout Core, had computed properties. And computer properties are – basically pure functions. Their dependent keys, as we call them in Ember, are their arguments. You can think of it as the arguments of the function. And, you know, every time we have the same values for those dependent keys, you will always have the same result for your uh, computer property. And that's what enables us to cache it. And that is in uh, functional languages is referred to as a, a referential transparency. And it 
is the basis for a lot of uh, concepts in functional programming. And it's really the basis for, I think, how an Ember developer should think about separating their code into functional and imperative pieces, basically pieces that modify state that is required for any UI development, and then more logic calculation type functions. And uh, as much of that as possible can be moved into computer properties, which I feel like is a strong message that I've always got from the Ember community. And that's really a functional message. And so I would say even though that wasn't, maybe Ember wasn't like messaged as that, from when I first got interested in functional languages and looking at Ember, I I saw that and I thought that that was where that came from. So I would say Ember is very functional in that way. Awesome. Yeah, and I agree. Ember computed properties are amazing. And they've definitely helped me make my code much better. Anytime I can replace an observer or a function call with a computed property, I'm going to do it. And so how much of, you said as much as possible, how much of Ember code do you think you can turn into computed properties? Most of it, I would say. (laughs) Like the way I think about spitballing here, I would say I would kind of divide the sort of type of code I write into different categories for Ember. There would be the the magical type logic that I write a tiny bit of boilerplate and I get, you know, great functionality that really is tested and built into the framework. And I would kind of, a good example of that would be query param, mm-hmm. stuff that's built into controllers or... Um, I know I said the C word, but I'm not supposed to. It's okay. Uh, I'm just kidding. Controllers are going to be relevant for another two months or so. Yeah. So there's the like query param uh, logic that is given to us by Ember. Another thing that kind of falls into this that we don't use anymore is like the sortable mix-in, like some of that right. kind of functionality. Right. So stuff where it's kind of, we're given a DSL and right, magic right. happens. Exactly. So there's that kind of code. Then there is one layer less domain specific where I would say that the hooks, like the route hooks, basically boilerplate to allow us to use our own logic at specific points uh, in setup and teardown. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really like kind of the essential uh, wrapper for mutation that I, I think Ember provides. And so Basically, anything that is not just a calculation, you're going to have to manually mutate that that is wherever it lives, like on its prototype or on its object. Uh Obviously, that you want to minimize those, but that will always exist when you are displaying things to a screen and you're keeping up with the state of your screen. So So that mutation, you say, will happen in various hooks, like did insert element and... It'll also happen in actions. Is there other places where mutation is okay? So that's primarily it. It's those two. The way I think uh, about it is you need to set something. If you need to explicitly change something, you need it to be a different value than it currently is. One, because you're setting it up for the first time or you are resetting it. So that would be like on entering and leaving. And Ember provides functions that fire at particular times that we call hooks for that. And then additionally, the only other time that something would not be used as a computer property or something that wouldn't just automatically change, that would have to rely on user input, right? If we're not in the middle of a transition and there's no user input, then 
unless it's some sort of animation or something that's like changing automatically on a timeout based on some visually obvious thing like a clock changing or something, then really you shouldn't have things that are just firing and like your state shouldn't be changing right? most of the time. Would, would you agree? Right. And I feel like that's true even if you're not using functional programming. Right. I think like the functional part isn't necessarily only doing stuff on user input because that's most programs that aren't timer-based. But the functional part is keeping the mutation to a certain set of methods. It's keeping it to those two places that we just talked about is keeping the mutation there. Well, the thing that is enabling computer properties are enabling us to have a conversation like this because computer properties are saved in the manner that you would like they're represented in the manner that you would access a property that you were just manually um, setting and changing as you're watching the value say like true or false or you know like a string that may represent different things at at different times to be displayed to the screen Mm -hmm. but at the same time it's basically combining the a pure function that you would extract out from the function that sets it. So if we were doing this without computer properties, you would basically could make like a helper function and then you would test that function. And then you would have a function that calls that function that actually would be based on some condition, getting the value running that pure function with the latest arguments that it needs and then setting that value as state on the object for a later retrieval. Right. And so Ember, the part that is unsafe is that latter part, but Ember handles this in a system that is timed and uh, using like the way that it resolves its like its dependencies for computer properties. And that combined with the caching is, you know, it conveniently combines those two. So that's why we're saying that all of this is functional because really it's just Otherwise, it would be these functional methods, and we're still having to save them in properties, which doesn't seem very functional. Saving state, because then you're having to then replace state on top of it. So that inherently is not functional, but Ember kind of handles that. So we can like give ourselves a break on that and bypass that and just trust computer properties and then try and limit properties that are manually set which is what I'm referring to as mutation. Anything right. that takes a primitive, like a, a number or a string or or a, a Boolean or anything, and then just limit setting those explicitly to route hooks or actions. Right, because if you set everything manually that required a certain calculation of properties, then you'd have a bunch of observers in a, a better case scenario then the worst case is observers. But you could also have just like every time one of the dependent property changes, every time you make that change, you have to remember to call change on it and recalculate it and then grab it from elsewhere. And so the uh, I consider Ember computed properties, I mean, there's a reason they use the term data flow because you really can visualize it flowing from several sources and based on how the sources, the river changes. That's right. Yeah. In in other languages like Haskell, and then you kind of get this with a Elm, which is a front-end scripting language that's a lot like Haskell. So wait, have you have you used Elm lately? No, not really. So but I just know the basis. Okay. That it's uh it's like a pretty true to 
the original like uh, right. functional active programming. Yeah, I mean, if you'd used Elm, then we were going to have a separate thing on Elmber just to see if Elmber. we could make it. Oh, I see. That's yeah. That's clearly not a thing. Um, <laughs> that, <laughs> it'd be interesting. Yeah, honestly, I'm really torn because I feel like JavaScript has gotten a lot better, and people that are in the Ember community and the Angular community and the React community, all of them that are investing in these transpilers and these build tools that are allowing us to use and test this new syntax on the fly that's really facilitated speeding things up with like uh, TC39 and the committees and everyone that's involved with those efforts have made JavaScript so much better. And, you know, I think that all of us are eternally thankful because this is the language that we write in every day and it's just gotten tremendously more accessible and full of features in the past uh, year and a half, two years. But other than that gratitude, I also still have feelings where it would be really like things like Elm and PureScript are really, really cool. Yeah. And another good side effect of the ES6 Babel movement, besides making JavaScript better, are that it's made it okay to transpile. Because if you remember two or three years ago, CoffeeScript was huge among some populations. But the people who didn't like it were like, oh, transpiling, what we write isn't what shows up in the browser. And so despite CoffeeScript being much easier, in my opinion, to write, they freaked out because what they saw on their browser was different than what they wrote. But now that opinion has completely changed because of ES6 and Babel. Right. And we have source maps so that we're not actually dealing with that issue. Like we see more or less what we originally wrote and it handles that for us. So we're yeah. not walking through so, much stuff. Well, source maps didn't stop many of the CoffeeScript haters, but <laughs> I'm definitely glad that we have source maps now. I remember looking through CoffeeScript uh, when I was first exposed to CoffeeScript, I was really learning JavaScript for the first time as well. And someone... Uh, who was mentoring me had written something that they were going to allow me to work on with them. And the whole thing was in coffee script and it didn't take me long at all to pick up what was going on is I already had a, a background in Ruby, but I grasped a handful of JavaScript concepts that I did not know that I needed to care about yet, or did not realize were uh, intricacy of the language by uh -huh looking at what I had written and looking at what the API, the CuffScript API was telling me, and then looking at the output JavaScript. And yeah, I, you know, I learned some valuable things that way. And so I think that that helped me early on. Um, so I have nothing but positive things to say. Like that yielded arrow functions, um, which are a great thing. Right. Because if you write CoffeeScript that is invalid, it won't transpile. That's true. Yeah. Which is a wonderful thing. And I mean, I think not everybody feels that way, but <laughs> I mean, the more I code, the more I appreciate. Well, I can't say appreciate because I don't actually work in this world yet. But the more that I see the need for things like types and compiling errors. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty. It's always the grass is greener is the approach that or is kind of the what I hear people say, because certainly it seems green to me in the <laughs> uh, statically compiled land, especially with not everything. I feel like I've only looked at the 
uh, more functional languages, specifically like Haskell's type system and some at Rust and right. I mean, if you go to Java, it's not going to be great, even though it has a type system. So the difference is that types and classes are coupled. And that inherently complicates things a little bit um, because the way that your types inherit from each other can, and I would make sure I say this right because I haven't actually worked in one of these languages, but just reading. <laughs> That's right. I won't give them your email address. You you won't get the hate mail. I will. Yeah. So types can inherit and share behavior and sort of be polymorphic in nature. It, it has to do with how uh, polymorphism is implemented. And so Java specifically fixes this with interfaces, which are very similar. Well, I guess they're very similar to uh, type classes in Haskell. And so that's something that's very natural to a language that already has algebraic data types, because you are just defining things sort of to have behavior and do whatever they want. And they're separate from like their prototype, they're, they're not, you're not grouping the behavior. So when you start grouping behavior, then that being where behavior is represented in a type like that, it, it adds complexity that you start having problems with like deeply nested polymorphism and stuff that that's why some of these languages don't attempt like all the nested, like the nested polymorphism of types that you can, uh, yeah, the nested, I was trying to think of a different way to say it, but yeah, then the recursive polymorphism that you can use in Haskell to like make <laughs> really abstract things that probably no one else can read uh, <laughs> or work on later. Like that is, you don't have that depth in all the other type systems. Like that's not very easy to do or maybe impossible to do without an external library like in Scala and the same in Java and stuff because it doesn't go that that deep mm -hmm. when it evaluates. So right. I don't know. And these things are really interesting to me. And honestly, I'm a little bit out of my depth here. Like I like talking about them. So these topics, I know enough about them to where they inform the way that I write JavaScript and think about writing code because I feel like whenever you start learning about these functional concepts and multiple paradigms, like the different paradigms for other languages and how they solve problems, it's kind of seeing how other people see the world. And, uh, you know, it, it makes you approach things differently and see the own, your own flaws, right? Like we see the flaws uh, more clearly for object-oriented programming. And then you can see and then you remember more why object-oriented programming exists uh, and why we do that instead of, you know, just instead of pure uh, procedural, like writing lines of, you know, one line and then another line. And so it makes you appreciate it more. And then it makes you write cleaner code. And, it, you know, you can kind of be a multi-paradigm sort of coder, like in a given language. And JavaScript really facilitates that. Like it has its higher order functions and its prototypal inheritance gives a really great flexibility for doing things in a way that isn't so defined. Like the language is just now having more patterns. Like we, I think actually you told me one time, maybe I shouldn't quote you on the air like this, <laughs> but that patterns are features that have not been language features not yet implemented and yeah, i thought about that's a uh i believe it came from the ruby community but i think i was the one to tell it to you you told it to me may i yeah it's when they were talking about so the pattern language book 
remember the old Gang of Four C pattern language book? And right. so when you're trying to translate those to Ruby, a lot of them don't work because Ruby just has a one-liner for it because uh, they've learned from C and they've made these higher order language features that make these patterns obsolete. Right. And I think that's wonderful because patterns are sort of the testing ground for new language features. And they're, it's sort of like uh, when we have Babel where the level one, level two stuff, people are just playing with it. And it's not even, well, I guess it would be like Babel plugins, where it's just people playing and eventually a lot of people start using it and then languages start baking it in. Right. Or a browser implements it and then the other browsers implement it. Yeah. Right. Another good example, and you made me think of something that I think is sort of interesting, which is it's good that JavaScript is so simple that we are able to implement these features in other languages as we emulate them with their patterns, mm-hmm. you know, and have been for however many years. And now, you know, we have syntactic sugar that, you know, will do the same thing under the hood, but it seems more like... Once you have the powerful primitives, like I remember the first language I learned was Scheme, which is a very, a very simple variant of Lisp. Right. And in the introductory book that I use, you are writing in Scheme, but you end up creating all these data structures that other languages have. And you create it just with these really simple building blocks. Right. And so, of course, it's nice to have those. But once you have the easy, like the uh, a powerful primitive, you can build up the other primitives. And I've also seen like a book in C where you build an object-oriented interface in just plain old C. Like you build your own uh, hash table. I think that's what it's called. Now I'm out of my depth. Uh, but all the things that object-oriented languages implement, you implement that in C. Yeah. Lisp is a cool language to do that stuff. And Oh, it's a beautiful language. It was, uh, it was the only one I could learn on. Well, the thing that makes it so great for implementing other features is because it doesn't have a, I guess it's abstract syntax tree that is its own syntax. So mm-hmm. it is its own tree. Um, <laughs> it doesn't need to be parsed and like recategorized, uh, re-represented in a tree. And so you can build like an interpreter or like language, like a small language really easily and see what you're doing. And uh, yeah, it's just really fun. I know no one cares about their own setup more than them, but I recently <laughs> have been losing my um, time into Emacs. And the, the reason why I have invested in Emacs is because over Vim or something else that would be equally as good is because it's a fun excuse to mess around with Lisp and to achieve like goals and and to configure my editor and um, it's cool and I highly recommend for people that are using Sublime or Atom or anything like that to experience the all encompassing life engulfing experience that is uh, transitioning to Emacs but <laughs> you might want to schedule some vacation <laughs> yeah it uh, I hear it takes about a month to get really get useful in it yeah so I was gonna respond to something else you were saying i realized we're kind of tangenting but oh we're really tangenting but before we sort of head out could you go ahead and tell me a little bit about who you work for yeah so 
I work for a company here in Austin, Texas, that uh, the name of the company is Q2, like capital Q, and then two uh, software. So we make banking software, and specifically, we make an all-encompassing online banking solution that connects uh, a lot of other banking products together for banks and lets them just interact with those things through us. And uh, we connect. So there's a lot of technical, like uh, domain specific bank stuff that we do that I started describing just now. But um, the easier way to describe it is that the part that the user sees is an online banking experience. Experience and the best one, you know, that you can think of with the bank that would spend the most money, hire the best team, and you would have the check deposit feature or, you know, the categorization of your money or uh, any possible social money feature that, that you could possibly um, think of. We invest all of our time into making the very best product that can be online banking for customers. And what we do is we make that highly customizable as an Ember app that is deployed. It's a hybrid app. So we wrap it in a native container. Um, it's not Cordova. It's like Cordova. It actually may have started as Cordova, um, but we have a really smart guy that a couple of them work really hard that have optimized it a whole bunch and, so we're able to deliver that to the Android store, the iPhone um, store, and also it is our adaptive uh, web app. And it's all a really large Ember app with different modules and at Ember add-ons. We use Ember CLI. So uh, you're making this really great Ember app and you're packaging it both for the web and for Android and iOS. And I have a few questions about that. So you're packaging this, do you sign people up directly or how do users get to your app? Very good question. Yes. So most banks, if you go to the, you actually have to open a bank account in person. Mm -hmm. And so which banks? Like, uh, are you selling this to the big banks? Are you selling this to like Goldman Sachs? Right. Uh, thank you for asking that because I started to explain that and then I went down a rabbit hole of <laughs> explaining something else um, technical. Uh, it's actually kind of a, a mission of our company and uh, at least it was explained to me that what we do is try and enable this great software that is obviously really expensive um, to develop to be had by smaller banks that are more focused, you know, and inherently smaller banks are more focused on the community because they are more embedded in the community. They're serving a smaller, more focused market. Credit unions also fall into this, like other nonprofit, like banking so, types of organizations. And the person that started this company uh, is my understanding that he really wanted to sort of level the playing field so that he could create good technology that would enable these companies to compete 
or these banks um, and specifically credit unions to compete with larger banks that had more resources and that really they wouldn't be able to compete with them because who's going to invest in a local credit union that may give you a better loan or can really benefit the community and put the money back into the community if you can't even access their services in a modern way. And so right. that's sort of and like the heart of our company. I that's huge. I actually yeah. just switched to doing business banking with a bank that uses Q2 and it's fantastic. Oh, really? Yeah, it's way better than the credit union I use for my personal stuff, which does not use Q2. Hey, that's great. Yeah. That's really awesome. Yeah, we have a whole team that does the commercial um, banking, and they've put a lot of uh, – we're putting a lot of focus in the commercial stuff right now. So that's not really my realm uh, to talk about those things. But definitely our company is doing a lot of exciting things, and we are using Ember to solve a lot of problems that otherwise would have had to be solved internally with undoubtedly a lot more fragmentation and uh, gnashing of teeth, I assume. <laughs> Q2's actually been using Ember since uh, before 1.0. So our wow. app has been around a long time and it has lots of uh, uh, layers of um, different Ember syntax in it that we're constantly cleaning up and, and working on. But it's a testament to like the the solid nature of Ember and the size of stuff it allows you to build without getting, you know, And stuck. the way that it slowly evolved. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely one of my favorite things about Ember is the way the community has respected, uh, like the way the team has approached uh, semantic versioning. I'm pretty sure everyone's a fan of that when they look around at um, the different options and things that have happened in other projects. And those people work really hard too, and everyone tries. But I think that our core team and the surrounding community really executed uh, the 1.0 to 2.0 thing exceedingly well. Yeah, definitely. All right. So you guys are doing some really great community focused, world changing stuff. And are you guys hiring? Yes, I was about to yell that. Um, but you asked in a normal voice, so I will also say it in a normal voice. We are always looking for Ember developers, and it is even more interesting than I described it. And we have focused JavaScript. We are a very focused uh, specialist kind of company to where we hire people just to work on Ember and nothing else. And I think, I think there's about 40 of us all broken up into a lot smaller teams and that, that sort of is growing and changing and um, we have a lot going on, but uh, it's a really great, fast moving place to work. Awesome. Definitely. You can reach out to me on Twitter. Awesome. And are you guys hiring junior, mid-level, senior? Reach out. All right. Uh, definitely senior and, you know, you should always just reach out and then see what happens. Go from there. If you are doing Ember and you are listening to the podcast and you're investing your time in Ember and uh, best practices around Ember, then if you care about those things, there's a good chance that we want to hear from you. So Awesome. Uh, that's really exciting. Obviously, we spent most of the time talking about functional programming, so I might have you back on for season two in around six months. Where we talk about more functional programming? Well, yes, probably. <laughs> but what I'm saying is we'll intend to talk more about Ember and how Q2 is using it. And then we'll actually end up talking about functional programming. Maybe we can talk about like actor concurrency and 
web workers and web workers in Ember or something interesting by oh, then. Yeah. We can give a little teaser or something. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on Real World Ember. This is the end of the show, but here's a message from our sponsor. Our sponsor who happens to be me. So I run emberscreencast.com. If you're an intermediate level developer, then this site is for you. So you've read your introductory book and you're ready to get started, but you're not quite into reading the source code yet. So I go and I explain some of the basics, but I also explain cool add-ons and some intermediate to advanced topics as well. So go ahead and check out emberscreencast.com. Two screencasts released every week for the intermediate Ember developer. I hope to see you there.